as, as many sort of regular fans of the pod will know, the three other gentlemen that aren't me, all West Indian heritage. And the Caribbean, lady. Where are you from, Alex? Except for me. I have heard tell that I'm from Nevis, uh, Haiti, Jamaica, <laughs> and there was a new one. You're a smallie, aren't you? Don't try and say <laughs> <that you're Jamaican>. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I hear. I hear different things all the time. Caribbean, West Indian, and African way back. Nigerian, I think. You've done one of those spit DNA tests, didn't it? That's what you've done. <laughs> Na- no, Nigerian, just... two two percent Egyptian, just like it's a, it's a bread it's a breadcrumb trail all the way back to the the Aztecs. It really is. Um, Actually, Mayan is in there. Mayan is in there. She's like a Lynx gift set. <laughs> Man said she's like a Lynx gift set. <laughs> That's so out of order. <laughs> but it's so accurate. Hello, hello, hello. Guess who it is? Good to have you back. Full compliment. Full house. Dom, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Yeah. I ain't really got nothing to add, man. I'm, I'm old as f- oh now. I have my birthday in it. I'm thirty, and I'm actually quite happy with it. I'm quite happy with it. Dom, now that you've hit thirty, you're gonna kind of come home, or are you gonna try and hold on to that hairline? Well, I'm going to Turkey next week. What are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> I could never be like Nate, man. I could never wear it so graciously. Yo, come on, I'm sorry, man. that was too easy. I just, too easy. I'm just saying, my own business. <laughs> But What's no, that look. scene in the office where Aaron. people are holding guns at everyone else in the room? <laughs> <laughs> listen, mutually, mutually. I'm, no, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Listen, that's it. I'll, I'll bring you all down with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fuck it. I've already, I'm already down, reaching up from the ground. Yo, man, that light is shining nicely off your forehead <laughs> right now, though. It looks good. It looks good. Mm, the skincare regime is solid. Yeah. Yes, man. Appreciate. Welcome that. to roast in a box. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Nate? I'm good. Well, I was good. No, I'm doing. I'm doing all right, man. Just uh, cracking on as ever, and yeah, just uh, changed up the the style of the beard. I did something different. Went for a mustache this time. Boredom, lockdown boredom, man. It gets to you, right? It gets to you. But yeah, no, I'm good. You could have just you could have patterned the Movember thing, and we just we'll run like a charity thing across the bottom of the screen if you're watching this in 4K. Alana, how are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. Bit busy with work bit fatigued but i'm going home in two weeks so it's the final push before i'm chilling california style oh god i could do with that (laughs) 23 degrees she's literally going home she's not going to be going bold we're talking about going bold with dom we're talking about literally going home to california (laughs) with alana alana you're not at all nervous about that those covid numbers oh i mean yeah but um Oh God, I am nervous. I don't. I don't want to talk about this. I had a conversation with my mom yesterday about this, and she like put the fear of God in me, and I was like, "If you don't want me to come home, just tell me." <laughs> no, I'm coming home. <laughs> What's the alternative, man? You got to go see Mumsy and that. Yeah, yeah, and I am doing. I am, you know, self isolating and basically putting myself in a bubble on the plane. Angelo, how are you, mate? Yeah, doing well. Um, some big things are going on. Um, and I still can't talk about them. I can't wait. When I can speak about it, uh, I will reveal it exclusively to the um, 
those that have paid their five pound to get the extras for the podcast but it's still yeah it's still kind of like uh f boris johnson forever and uh apparently we yeah just just yeah f boris johnson but thank you because you might be putting some food in my belly so it's not feeding anyone else is it i know (laughs) (laughs) it's all going to angelo yeah, I need to now announce I'm a black Republican. Um, I, I will, uh... <laughs> the, new, the new face of Blexit. Oh, For those people that tuned in to our last pod, where we did a little wrap-up of the US election, and um, before Alana started crying, um, Angelo had a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, want, I want to say I want to say be in his bonnet but he was saying it with his full chest he was the number one Lewis Hamilton fan a week ago he was saying rename the day Hamill day all this wildness that made no sense like he had a belly full hold of on hold punch. on hold on hold on look at look at my man trying to besmirch me I was saying that's not what I'm saying I'm not saying I'm the number one Lewis Hamilton fan what I was saying is I find the relative lack of love for this man absolutely wild we kind of venerate flipping Jimmy White a snooker player who never won anything you know, we kind of venerate people that win a single title once. Tim Henman is still getting paychecks for being a semi-finalist. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, yeah, uh, Hamilton's not got a hill hey, named after him. Yeah, don't, don't, don't look, man. Don't fuck up the play when I'm when I'm going one on one, man. Meanwhile, <laughs> 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 meanwhile, you've got Lewis Hamilton, seven world titles, number one, tied with Michael Schumacher. 94 wins, that's first. 97 pole positions, that's first. 163 podiums, that's first. 227 points finishes, that's first. 3,738 career points, that's first. 413 points in a season, that's first. And for those that say, well, there's more points available now, he also has the record for percentage of points won in a season, so suck on these nuts. My point is, is that we have some truly great athletes. It's not just Lewis Hamilton, it's Raheem Sterling in football. It's Joffre Archer in cricket. Why is it that these players are constantly being, just not being given the love by the the, the general public, but also get unbelievably dragged in the media? We talked a couple of pods ago about the different treatment between um, Mason Greenwood and, uh, is it Phil Foden, the Man City player? Is that his first name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know football like that. But there's, there's always that. And for me, the reason I get upset, and you can make a link to our second topic, is that there are people in this country, black people in this country that are seriously worried uh, that, that we receive different treatment. And not just as, as sports people, but in health, criminal justice, immigration, democracy in general. And people say, get over it. But my issue with the Lewis Hamilton thing is that I draw a straight line through to the fact that he's not given love and black people are overrepresented in prisons. That we're more likely to die of COVID. We can't talk about the fact that Lewis Hamilton doesn't get love but we're also not allowed to talk about the treatment that we get and we'll talk about that in the second topic but please we either celebrate excellence or we don't you know you want to talk about Sterling Moss a guy that I don't think ever won a title you've got Lewis Hamilton right to blood clot here that's what I'm saying do you think that that somehow has to do with the nature of Formula One though and the fact that I mean I know you listed off some other um, people throughout history who have been like greatest of all time and have gotten some love and praise but do you think that Formula One is accessible enough to where you would highlight 
Lewis Hamilton. Like, I, I love the guy, but I only started following him because I happened to watch, you know, Drive to Survive. Otherwise, I wouldn't have really paid a lot of attention to who he is I, and, and how great just, he actually is. We we act in this country like Damon Hill kind of, you know, had loaves and fishes and fed thousands of people. Like, he he gets this unbelievable love. He won two titles. Sterling Moss is talked about as the greatest driver of his era. That is what you often hear about Sir Sterling Moss. Uh, recently passed away last few years um, never won a title um, but is talked about as the greatest so I do think that there is in this country not in the same way that there is for football obviously um, uh, but there is love for uh, motorsports I remember in the 90s like you couldn't go anywhere without kind of hearing Carl Fogarty's name and Carl Fogarty was a was a two-wheel driver you know so there is there is love for it but the fact that Hamilton doesn't get it is just it bothers me because I think it leads into all these other things. And and the, the central argument for me is that I just don't feel that black people are listened to. And that will be in our second topic as well. What are you saying, Don? I get that. I get that completely. And I also think back to the 90s. And for me, the vast majority of people in this country who are Formula One fans right now are the ones who are fans in the 90s. We've seen a bigger wedge driven in society in the last decade or so between the wealthy and the poor. So now Formula One, even more than ever, is a sport where it is not really appreciated by the working class. And most of the people who support and follow Formula One are middle-aged, middle-class white blokes. So how are we ever going to expect him to be lionised like the rest of them should be? It's not going to happen. I wouldn't even say it's naivety. It's just something I don't ever expect to really change within that sport. We're seeing things slowly start to change. In football, it is changing because if we look at who are the people within media who are representing footballers who are being uh, who are on TV adverts, who are doing all the stuff on social media, on YouTube, it is more young black men and women that are doing it. And I think it is slowly leading some kind of revolution in football, even though the majority of the people that go through the turnstiles are white men. But when it comes to a sport where not only is it only really followed by middle-class, middle-aged white men, it's participated by middle-class white men, with one or two exceptions here or there, how can we ever expect that to really change? I just don't think I don't think there's an appetite for it to really change. Like Lewis I mean, Hamilton, he's a goat, but do we do we need do I mean, we expect we, that to be even better? Dom, I hear what you're saying about the football, but I remember the um, Adam Keyworth. He's a he's a Twitter user. I think he's a sometimes um, like local journalist, and he ran a thread of the times where the national press had run stories on Raheem Sterling, and it talked about the one where Raheem Sterling was tired, uh, the one where he uh, was called a football footy idiot for no reason, where he was greedy for wanting a pay rise after a successful season, where he was described as obscene because he bought his mum a nice sink out of his own money, the one where he dared to fly on a budget airline, and this this thread, I think it's got like fifty or sixty tweets, and. It just it just happens every single time, and it's the thing is I to be, to be clear to, to the listeners, I don't really care about Lewis Hamilton like that. I don't really care about Raheem Sterling like that or Joffre Archer. But still, do you remember when Joffre Archer there was this insinuation that he wasn't grafting because he didn't put in the right effort, and then it turned out that he was bowling through a stress fracture, and it's like. Black people not being believed, black people not being given their credit doesn't just impact us on sport. What, I, what I'm seeing happening with sports stars, you see trickle down in fatal ways in the rest of society. And that's what I wanted to hit on. No, I, I agree. I agree. There is a, a hell of a lot of what you're saying that I agree with. My issue with the comparison with football is we talk about how certain newspapers 
will denigrate black footballers and working class footballers. But who reads newspapers? It's the same people who are watching Formula One. It's the same It's the same age bracket, the same kind of demographic that are watching Formula One. Most football fans nowadays consume their sports on social media. It's yeah. on Twitter. It's on Instagram. <laughs> like so I don't... Exactly. So I, I don't think that it is... I don't think that the people that are talking down on Lewis Hamilton and on Raheem Sterling and talking about what Marcus Rashford's doing with his millions nowadays, they're not trying to reach the people that are really being influenced by what these people are doing on the sports field nowadays anyway. So I think it's two different audiences and it's endemic really of the way society is right now. It's like you've got all these progressives and then you've got all these old school thinkers. Dom, I I fully appreciate and agree with what you're saying, but the the kind of, it's not them that are doing it down and the, the people that kind of aren't that are on social media is not as strong an argument as you think when you look at what these guys are having to suffer with on social media. And like they're getting crucified in all the places and you know the sad thing is I don't think that a Micah Richards or an Ian Wright being in a prominent role is going to necessarily change that because this the attitude is societal obviously in me Dan and Alana we talked in the US election about in the US election in the last pod and this idea that you can talk about progress all you want but you just had the worst president you could ever have had and a majority of white people still voted for him. A majority of white women and majority of white men in higher numbers, obviously. So there is, I think there is something fundamental that we, and this is what I'm talking about, we're not even allowed to, except in spaces like this, even allowed to have the discussion. You Because what what's the thing that I see online with Lewis Hamilton? Well, he's tough to love because he, he lives in a tax haven. What? Like Jensen Button. <laughs> my dear, my dear. I think... The, the most important thing to understand here is I'm talking about progression with one very specific area of the population. The side that I'm talking about, and, and Jello's mentioning with his argument, is something that I don't really think can be changed. Those guys are setting their views. They've got their newspapers that are going to write what they're going to write and um, express certain kinds of um, sentiments. That's, that's not going to change. And that segment of the population, we've just got to hope that it gets smaller and smaller, but it's not going away. It's not going away. We we can hope that it dies out with an older generation. It's not going anywhere. But then we look at, think back to 1998, people were burning David Beckham effigies in the street. And there's stronger arguments to be made in certain segments of the population as to why he should be a sir over Lewis Hamilton. How can I take any kind of argument from these people as rational? I can't. I think not one bit. I think you have just hit on something really interesting, which Lewis Hamilton himself has spoken about, which is... That even beyond race, and Don, when you were talking about Formula One, you were talking about it being a middle class sport. There is a class aspect to it as well. Because I think if Lewis Hamilton had Courtney Law's views, he'd probably be mm-hmm. better received. Um, 100%. If, he, if he if he fed into narratives of, you know, you know, the black community need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and black fathers need to be present and all this nonsense that and when I say nonsense audience what I'm saying is is that these statistics are prevalent across racial groups but it's only ever one group that seems to be talked about you know white on white crime uh, and I'm putting this in air quotes is just as prevalent as black on black crime but we just call that shit crime Um, and so I think there is a class issue and that's where I feel there can be progress made because again it's that fact that he has hasn't followed the normal path like Look, I mean, there's billionaires who are driving around as Formula One drivers 
Like there are guys whose surname was the same name as the Formula One team. Um, <laughs> you, but this is this is this is the truth of it, and it's an expensive sport. And there, and there, and there is that resistance. Like, who is this person to come in and do that? But again, my point is, is what happens there, and that sense. And the thing is, he can. The difference is, Lewis Hamilton can just go out and win titles. He's got this great car. He's got this great team behind him. He wins titles. He's going to get his money. He's going to get his recognition. But how many of us just sitting around this virtual table have been the best worker in our environment? And when it comes to performance review, we're not getting anything. You know, we're not getting that recognition. We're taking orders from people that are living off the work that we're doing. And you can't find a path to... Um, promotion because they say you haven't got experience even though the work that you're doing is getting other people promoted and that's where my frustration comes from I, I see these guys your Lewis Hamilton your Joffrey Archers your Raheem Sterlings as proxies for what's happening in our smaller worlds the difference being that these guys still get their millions and they can turn social media off that's the difference I guess what, what are your thoughts Dan I see you looking pondering the thing was I, I actually agree with you and there is a through line that you can that you can draw as you say through all those things and Lewis Hamilton is a bit of a it's a curious case because I, th- I think I'm glad that you brought up all the other sports and you brought up Jimmy White first of all when people think about the sports and the things that really sort of get them excited in their favourite era it's always when they were like when they were young when they were coming of age during their teens that's why people you know like of, of my age and our age will say what was the best era oh it was Schumacher it was Damon Hill it was uh, uh, Jacques Villeneuve and during that era they drove they drove for Williams Williams were the British team and they were fighting against Ferrari Ferrari was the evil empire so I can you've got that angle I don't think anyone actually says they were the best drivers no one in their right mind but they like those drivers because at that time they managed to break up the sort of Ferrari dominance and they were driving for the English team which is you know that sort of nationalism element again like Jimmy White he was a character he was like that's that sport is essentially you know it's it's a British sport just, just sitting in pubs just smoking inside drinking pints during play Jimmy White is, is is a national hero Lewis Hamilton he's I feel like he's he's pretty much set up for everyone in Britain to hate him because, like you say, he gives them he gives them every excuse for to for them to sort of to say to try and take away from his achievements. Like, I, I'll, I'll bring up the the most recent thing which sort of drew everybody's ire, and that's been how outspoken he's been since George Floyd's killing. Uh, his quote to the rest of Formula One was was this: "I see those of you who are staying silent. Some of you, the biggest of stars, yet you stay silent in the midst of injustice." Not a sign from anybody in my industry, which of course is a white dominated sport. I'm one of the only people of colour, yet here I stand alone. I would have thought by now you would see why this happens and say something about it, but you can't stand alongside us. Just know I know who you are and I see you. I do not stand with us looting and burning buildings, but those who are protesting peacefully. There can be no peace until our so-called elders make change. This is not just America, this is the UK, this is Spain, this is Italy and all over. The The way minorities are treated has to change. How you educate those in your country of, of equality, racism, classism, and that we are all the same. We are not born with racism and hate in our hearts. It was taught by those we look up to. As an individual who previously to that they were just like, oh, he's just sort of, he's just sort of a bit of a robot. He's a bit of a machine. He only cares about brands. 
for someone like him to flip all of a sudden and start talking like that when he's the most successful driver, when he's the best driver of his era, when he's got the platform he has, it makes people very, very, very uncomfortable and they can't control him now. And they realize they can't control him now, which I guess contributes to this sort of, the kind of shonky results you get when you see that they did a poll the other day of the best Formula 1 driver and Sebastian Vettel's beating him <laughs> in the poll. But who, who are they polling for this? This, this, was, this was on a, 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 like a, I think it's gp.com. So this, these are like forum guys. These are F1 guys who, who are in this poll. And it's that kind of thing. And I think the way he's pivoted from being brand first and being about, okay, business to being like, I'm about what I'm about and I'm about that action and you can't control me. It, it does, it does, it terrifies people. And I, I want to go back to like what he must have gone through as, as a black driver in that sport. Like was it 2008? So I'm not sure what his first year was. That must've been like around his first year when there was guys in Catalonia in the stands all dressed in blackface big groups of them saying they were like Hamilton's family and the FIA just warned people in the crowd imagine that in like one of your first seasons persuades the stand saying that all over the papers that's what this guy had to deal with and what he had to come through and for him to go on that sort of personal journey to the point where he is now is only only of credit to to himself um it's I mean the question was why is no one talking about Lewis Hamilton and I came on like ready to say no one really cares about Formula One but it's uh, I, I think it's as much about that as it is about what it looks like and what it says about how they view the rest of society like Angelo says uh, yeah so I think I uh, maybe I need to eat my words here because um, just as you guys were talking uh, I was looking at Lewis Hamilton's Instagram account and you know, clearly there is the exposure for him in the sport because he has 21 million followers and his posts, even some of his more controversial posts, get upwards of a million likes, sometimes two million likes. And so I wonder if the, you know, we're saying that people who follow Formula One um, are not giving him the, the clout and the praise and the love that he deserves. And that might be true of traditional Formula One fans and followers, but possibly with his success and that the fact that he is the goat you know he is attracting new people to the sport and maybe he'll start getting the love and the accolades that he deserves from a new formula one audience and maybe the standards to which we hold athletes or people who are in the public eye need to be changed maybe we shouldn't be holding them to the standards of you know their reception in white middle-aged sort of elitist audiences you know what worries me though alana is is it's this it's objectively objectively lewis hamilton is the greatest driver of all time of all time you can look at any statistics that you want and even with that as his kind of resume there's still doubt cast on him i've i've seen very respectable journalists talk about sebastian vettel being better than him uh and fernando alonso being a better driver than him forget michael schumacher but that for me is by the by the thing that worries me is that even when you are black excellence 
you're still not listened to. And if you're not listening to it, Black Excellence, when you are literally the greatest of all time in what you do, how does that then filter filter down? And obviously, we're going to talk about that in like our next segment. And that's what my worry is: is that this shit filters down, and that's a scary thing. I wonder if the ty- if there can be a shift in how we how we accept recognition of Black Excellence. The curious case of rappers and politics. Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen, pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? Nigga, this is ridiculous. I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You think when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Cause somebody please find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? Add me Ja Rule. So last time on our US election special, the topic that came up was how many black rappers in the US had weighed down in Donald Trump's favor in the election and sort of been proponents there of the Republican conservative agenda despite what had happened during the last five last four years in that country and I feel like it was it's a conversation which is worth having and worth broadening out in particular if the in light of the last sort of year um, I just think with rappers, with voices, and we again we we, we joke about it with sort of the Dave Chappelle uh, stand-up show. Are, are people expecting too much from these voices? Now, this it sort of it ranges from you, when you see like Skepta, he was he was in conversation with Naomi Campbell, and she started talking about politics, and he put his fingers in his ear live on camera like a like a kid as though he didn't want to talk about politics as though politics wasn't going on all around him and the reaction to that was was of great disappointment great great disappointment by his fans by his community when in reality he's he's just a guy surely entitled to say this isn't much for me i haven't got anything to say here so please keep that away from me and then you see when other artists do get involved in politics time and time again you see why you wish they'd have stayed out of it. So I'd, I'd just like to open it up. Is it time we sort of reframed our expectations um, with regards to entertainers on these topics, Nate? Yes, I think so, is the, is the short answer. Um, but also you've got to look at where these, uh, where these people come from and what they experience. You know, they've always had to be about theirs to succeed, right? So why would we expect, you know, that to change when they get to, you know, the super rich level or success level? Um, I just think, yeah, we because we invest so much time in these people, right, listening to their music and um, kind of following their journeys, we feel entitled to it and part of it. But as you kind of pointed out, at the end of the day, they're still them. They still have their choice. I think, yeah, we just, you can't look to put everyone on a pedestal because, nobody you know even though they might have perfected a craft or a particular skill or you know be able to do something really well they're still flawed as anyone else so there's still every right for them to 
to have you know crazy points of view whether that's politically or whatever else so yeah I just I don't look at them in the same way we have to also acknowledge that celebrities do have an important role to play in politics in engagement with political ideas and engagement with uh, with social issues like the everyday person on the street isn't really listening to Ta-Nehisi Coates or Kehinde Andrews and the only time they're really going to get engaged with certain things is when <laughs> I don't really want to talk about rappers but other types of entertainers athletes might talk about these things using their platform um, but we shouldn't expect too much of them we shouldn't expect too much of them at all because none of them are really learned in these kind of fields I mean I don't know how much any rapper is engaging with politics and you can tell how little some of them are based on what they say when they do speak up um, but then at the same time a lot of these people are mega wealthy and I for one cannot say that I wouldn't change and that my politics wouldn't change if I became mega wealthy if I just look at my own life and the way that we gain and lose certain friends and move in certain circles as we progress through our careers throughout our lives who's to say that once you get rich you're not going to start to feel a bit of resentment to certain people where you're from if people have come to you so much with a handout and you've got this mentality of well I was able to get here my hard work got me here these people need to <laughs> they need to work a little bit harder and then that resentment starts to build and of course I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here but I'm just trying to get into the psyche of where some of these rappers heads are at and I don't think they should ever be the spokespeople for these kind of communities the unfortunate thing is in the world of celebrity in 2020 people hang off their every single word people hang off their every single tweet so they are going to have a role to play but I also I also hope that the consumers of social media the people who are taking these words on board are slowly starting to wake up and realize that there isn't much depth in what's going on i mean from what i was seeing on twitter when lil wayne and supposedly 50 cent and supposedly ice cube were endorsing trump in the last election there's not a lot of it that was met with any kind of oh you know what they've got a point most of it was like what are these guys doing so they've got a role to play but at the same time it's more just in their reach people are going to listen we, we have to accept that people listen people are going to listen acknowledge that people are going to listen but the unfortunate thing is all of us around this table right now we've all had a good education we all know how to think critically not everyone does so look man, we shouldn't listen to them Ma malcolm x talked about this like nearly 60 years ago he's like in what other community are the entertainers the intellectual thought leaders like my man my man put it on the a puppet for us 55 60 years ago but it's not even that they're puppets it's that why why are they given such outsized influence and you know and w we've fallen into what might be considered um Malcolm X is trapped there by talking about why isn't Lewis Hamilton getting more credit? Like, and the thing is, is like I don't give Lewis Hamilton's political stance doesn't make him a better or worse driver. Um, uh, Skepta sticking his fingers in his ears while his brother does grind for Corbyn doesn't make either of them better or worse artists. The problem that we've got is that because we have so few leaders in the black community that are allowed to live out a full and you know. Un, 
molested life, um, we kind of see anybody that ascends to a certain level as as a leader. Um, but who's a leader in the white community? But but this is the thing is that there are leaders across different sectors. You know, th- there's an idea when you're an ethnic minority, you just don't see yourself uh, as much. Uh, so that's that's why that is, and that's, that's the same in lots of different kind of uh, uh, ethnic minority communities. Like I haven't met a Polish person in this country that won't, doesn't want to talk to me about you know Robert Lewandowski or you know other Polish artists or sports stars that are doing bits. I think my big my my greater point of I guess confusion when it comes to somebody, especially some of the rappers, is that that there is such a um, there's such a contradiction at the root of everything they do, especially rappers. That they talk about being from the hoods and the love they have for the hoods, but they you they talk about trapping and getting out of the lifestyle. So, the same Jay Z that was talking about kind of how difficult it was growing up in the Marcy projects is also talking about big pimping. So I can un- there is a tension there at the heart of their work that they speak about. But what always bothers me is that when push comes to shove, it seems that a lot of these uh, artists uh, go with green before they go with black. And that, for me, is always worrisome. But then it it's not a surprise because it's that same tension that I get where you can have rappers that are talking about how they're going to raise their baby daughters to be queens and princesses, but then are talking about hoes and bitches. And it's like, well, what's the, what's the difference? So there is always a contradiction at the heart of it. It's just I think there needs to be a recognition, as Nate said, of where they're coming from. But also, let's not give them a pass because you can pick up a book. If, you're good, if, you, if, you, if you get a platform and you know that this year has been the year of Black Lives Matter, before you speak on it, just pick up some Audre Lorde. You know, pick up, pick up, uh, pick up the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, just do a little bit. Fam, of these people are worth millions and millions and millions of pounds they get and their dollars, assistance and they have all the sex that they the want, all the thing. drugs they want, all the parties, the boat parties, and club, everything that they want. Why are they going to pick up Audre Lord? Why? Why should we expect them to? But I th- see, and this is what Angela was pointing this out, and this is the problem that I have is that, in my opinion, and and yes, I think that we 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 put. <laughs> We give too much store to celebrities generally, but I would hold any human to the same standard um, of integrity that I would hold another human. And if I look at a rapper who has come to prominence uh, with the message of being all black, everything, pro-black, giving back to the hood, about the community, and if you've come to prominence with that being one of your fundamental messages, and like Angelo says, when push comes to shove, you're silent and you don't deliver on that, then you are a punk bitch. That is whether you're a rapper, <laughs> that's whether you are um, <laughs> anyone. Anyone who's come rads to riches, I don't care. I, I would hold them to the, to the same standard. Um, and just because you're a rapper and a celebrity and now capitalist doesn't, doesn't give you a pass. I listen. I agree. I, the reason that this irks me a little bit is I don't like the way that we're framing it. Uh, and it, so, it, it sounds like we're blaming rappers when rappers are not the problem. They are the result of 
where does rap music come from? Where does so much black music and black culture come from? It comes from oppression. The reason these people rap about the certain things that they do, the reason these people live in the environments that they have lived in, grown up in, some of them still live in, is because of the oppression that came from the system that they exist within. So when they start to rap, and then they start to make some money, and then they start to change, it's like they're beating the system, but at the same time, I don't understand why we should expect anything else from these people. They are not thought leaders. They are artists and musicians. I don't want to get my... I, I want to get my culture from these guys. I don't want to get what is right and wrong in society from these guys. I just want to hear some dope shit and I want to dance to it. But no one in this chat is disagreeing with that specific point. No one is saying... I think we're all saying that no no one is asking what Ja Rule thinks about this. Like, he, he can't run a festival. Like, so no one's asking what Ja Rule thinks. The point that I think we're making is that we, we're acknowledging that there is a tension, a tension, a very human tension. I think there's also an acknowledgement that a lot of people in the arts industry that become successful do so at an age where they're super young. So, like, kind of, thank God that I didn't have, like, money and fame when I was 21 because I'd be anonymous as shit. I'd be, I'd be down a ditch somewhere, like, just buried in whatever i think what we're saying though is that you can't you can't have it both ways like i love e40 do you know why i love e40 because e40 has talked about the same thing for 30 years he talks about how much he loves having sex he talks about how much he reps the bay area and he talks about how much he hates haters like every one of his tracks is just the same thing for 30 years again i'm not going to e40 for like fiscal policy and, and neither should I have to. But you do have certain rappers, like, and I'll talk about, let's talk about Skepta. Skepta, when he kind of came back, was like, do you know what? I've fallen in love with the wrong things. I'm going to strip everything back. I'm going to make this video that costs 50 pounds. I'm going to get back to my roots. I'm going to get back to, to the ends and the class. Fine, great. But then listen to what people in the end are saying. And not even necessarily, um, not even necessarily um, about police brutality. Listen to what they're saying about there's nowhere for our kids to go after school. The reason these postcode wars are going on is because there are too many kids that are out because their parents have to work and they can't get they can't be at home. Like if you if you're really about going back to the ends, then that's the shit that's happening in the ends. As well as some of the good stuff that's coming out. So yeah, no, I'm not looking to them for fiscal policy or anything like that. But I am saying that if you're going to grow and develop as an artist and you know that you're going to be um, talked about some of these events, you know what is it? You, your, your silence will not save you and, and neither will your ignorance if you know you're going to be t spoken about it and you want to kind of have it that you're kind of for the people then read a fucking book that's all I'm saying the counter that I have to that is we use the example of Skepta in the Naomi Campbell interview but these questions shouldn't be asked if the person's not willing to speak about it why is that question being asked in the first place ask Akala that kind of thing let's not ask, ask Skeppy and I think we expect far too much from these people I mean if someone is talking trap and talking about killing and drilling in their music, but then they're sending that money to go and develop and build in Africa where they're from, what's what's really the bad thing here? Should they be changing their messaging? Should they be up in interviews talking more socially consciously when they're actually going and doing the stuff, they're doing the do? So, I mean, I really don't care what the rappers are saying in their music or in front of a microphone when it comes to being questioned about politics if they're doing a bit for their own community i don't really care what the message they put out is there's all, there's more than one way to help someone there's more well, exactly. than one way to help someone and um i think i think everyone can have a role to play and it i sort of lean between sort of the the, the, the fall between the two of you on this on this particular debate because if 
the the role Skepta has done as as we say role model, not as a role model, as an example of someone from that area who was doing MCing and he was shot or whatever, and then he started rapping and he's now doing like he's doing like um, he's got his own brands, got his own label. I'm not saying he's he's an example, he's a a role model, but he's an example of of what you can do if you're if you sort of turn your back on the life of the roles and I, I i feel like when people say no oh, if you say you're for the streets or for the hood they're of the streets they're of the hood they're not for it that's just what they like no matter nobody's what happens, for it no matter what happens that's what they're gonna be but at the same time i think about other artists and you Tom, like you mentioned the car there like i think He's come up. He's like really inspirational, and a lot of us are familiar with it in here. I'm not going to sort of go into it, but I think what happens is when we see artists like Akala, when we see an artist like Tupac, obviously the obvious US example, but even in, in the UK now, when we when we see someone like Dave, and we see we see the impact that their lyrics can have, we see the effect that they can have when they have done the research and they have done the homework, and they can still make bangers. And they can have a massive cultural um, imprint. That is when you start to think, well, imagine if that became the norm, and you you get Stormzy stood on the pyramid stage, and you, you start to think, imagine if if this is what all the kids making music were aspiring to do. That if that this is where the kids are primarily getting their education, which is a which is a problem. Mm-hmm. in itself but if this is where they primarily get their education then I think it does fall on those at the top of of that field to make sure that education is a rounded one that's going to actually help them uh, change their lives I agree my brother some of these rappers can't even read Biff and Chips some of them are dumb so I can't expect <laughs> them to be coming out and, and grilling people and, and telling people about politics I love you. you guys know the kind of music that I listen to that's personally what I would rather listen to i want to listen to something with a message but at the same time i don't expect that from everyone and again as i was saying previously a lot of these guys are a result of a system which has poor education terrible attainment in schools so when we do get those guys they're a shining light and we need more of them and i hope we get more of them but at the same time i'd much rather a whole bunch of black kids that are coming out of you out of university with degrees that are coming out with a well-rounded education so then we don't have to rely on rappers to be telling us these things because we can know about it we can think critically and do it ourselves this is it marvin gay ruined it for everyone <laughs> we got that good we got that good protest dish back in the day and now it's a real famine out here yeah i guess uh, i i do agree with you dom and maybe we've all reached a consensus. My my issue isn't that I think that we should um, have an expectation of musicians or rappers or artists to speak to politics. Uh, the issue I have specifically is with the ones who have chosen to speak about these issues in their work. And then when they're asked to speak about them, like on a like specifically about politics or in an interview they have nothing to say or they shy away from it so it's that hypocrisy that I have a problem with so if you are a rapper who is gonna you know talk about these things in your work but then you can't really back it up in every day um, or you're seemingly absent in the conversation when the conversation is really difficult I take issue with that but they're rapping 
at the end of the day, Biggie Smalls didn't live all the experiences that he talked about. He was talking through the lens of a lot of his friends' experiences and street legend. So I also don't expect everything that comes up in these rappers' songs, everything that's in these lyrics, to be a reflection of what they are. Because a lot of the... Look at Rick Ross. Rick Ross has created this whole persona and he's had to carry that throughout his whole career. So I 100% believe that there will be certain rappers who will go in a direction and speak on certain themes for a specific period of their career because, right, this is a quick new rebrand. I need to pivot to reach a new market for the next part of my career. I don't think that a lot of these rappers will believe in the shit that they're saying, but it's going to sell. So we need to take it for what it is. At the end of the day, it's art, and not all art reflects reality. How do you feel, Alana, about Kendrick Lamar? Because he doesn't talk about these things publicly, but he's a, he's a doer. Yeah, I was just, this whole time I've actually been thinking about Kendrick Lamar because on a personal level, I mean, to pimp a, pimp a butterfly really hit, <laughs> hit me at a time where I needed to hear that message and I really looked to him as influential in my own sort of coming to terms with my blackness and growing up you know, as a black woman in America. And um, it it was a catalyst for a lot of questions for myself. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, I, I have a personal attachment to his work. And so maybe that impacts my expectation of him because I find it quite disappointing that he hasn't been more vocal, um, you know, during the whole Black Lives Matter protests and about George Floyd and... I don't know. It's it's a tricky one because I, it's disappointing, um, but I do also understand what Dom is saying about how, you know, as an artist, you know, your art is your expression, and so maybe that's maybe that's all you have to give is is the message through your art, and that is your platform for speaking about the things that you want to talk about. But, but I actually I think that's more important. I think that's more important because the Kendrick album, To Pimp a Butterfly, that is going to last. It is going to stand the test of time. Those records that he was making, and there's lots of other artists in this category as well. Dan, you said Marvin Gaye, what's going on? I don't need a tweet when I've got this body of work that I can go back to in 20 years' time. I don't need a tweet. I don't need an interview. And I'll, I'll agree, like, kind of jump on the back of that. If you haven't got anything to say, then don't say anything. That's what I mm -hmm. feel. But, you know, because I'm now thinking back to the whole no-name thing and J. Cole. Like, don't catch feelings if kind of somebody says something and you feel that it's added at you. If you're happy saying yeah. nothing, then say nothing. And only speak when you've got something to say. You know, and I feel there's a lot of kind of people that could learn a lot, <laughs> ironically, from Chip. You know, Chip never just responds straight away to Aviv. He'll take his time. He'll speak when he's got something to say. If Kendrick Lamar hasn't had anything to say since uh, Dan, then that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't also feel... And now I think we're getting into this idea of integrity. Like I feel that when he does speak, he'll have something beautiful to say. Like The last thing I heard from him was his verse on The Buster, and I thought that that's great music. But because he, for me, has banked up that credibility, that authenticity, I don't need him to speak on that. And that's where someone like him, for me, is different to somebody like a... Killer Mike, where it's like he hasn't made protest his brand, but when he speaks, he does it, and that's why um, Nipsey's death was so tough for me because actually that was a guy who I felt perfectly was able to balance. This is my rap persona, but this is what I'm doing in the streets, and actually the two have a crossover. 
here's how they cross over. You know, I'm not going to hold everybody to the Nipsey Hustle standard. I'm not going to hold everybody to the Kendrick Lamar standard. If you haven't got anything to say, then don't say anything. But if you know you're going into an environment where you're going to be questioned by that, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask you to read a book. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm glad you sort of covered that there, Alana. And I understand because I, in the past year, have had the same feeling with Dom mentioned uh, Tanahasi Coates. I mean, and I find his, I find his reading and I find his polemics and I find his articles so comforting. Not just because he's, I always like he reaffirms my worldview, but it's it opens up so much more thinking, and you can see the sort of craft and the thought that's developed behind each line and I thought during the entire this most of this year I've been thinking I want to read something from him and I want to hear something from Kendrick Lamar and then I did get to thinking that you know what what why 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 am I entitled to this the fact that I take comfort from it is great from my perspective but if it's not going to advance the world or if it's not going to help solve the issues at hand which neither of those things are then that's purely from a, a sort of selfish viewpoint. And I, I remember back when this sort of second wave of what's called pro-black sort of protest music, it was D'Angelo in the Vanguard and he sort of surprise dropped that and accelerated it and he said the people needed to hear it when they needed to hear it. And I can't remember precisely which black death this was. Um, was it might have been after Ferguson? I'm not sure. but. Yeah, so but that music landed exactly when it needed to land. It said what it needed to said. He didn't have to say anything around it, and it exists and it lives in it in itself. And uh, yeah, if, if 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 Kendrick's got nothing to say, then you know he shouldn't say anything. And again, Kano's another good one. When Kano's second album, it was such a break, but for him, he wasn't in a place to create the music he needed to create, and he's not creating protest music but he's chronicling black life and what happened when that first the second out his sophomore album came a third one followed really quickly and he dropped it when he needed to drop and some of the sort of themes and motifs you hear on the album when you see him do teardrops at the mobo it's like you 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 understand and you feel it and that came when it needed to come and he was in a space to produce that that work and it hit when it needed to hit so um i think to sort of wrap up my point of view on this, I don't think we should necessarily hold them to a high standard, but I think they should always strive to deliver their take, if it's an informed take, when they feel it. And I think that's how you uh, they're going to make the most impact. And I think also it would be helpful if, you know, they felt comfortable saying, I can't speak to this right now. Because that would actually alleviate all of the, all of the discomfort that I as a viewer or a listener feel when I feel like they're disappointing or not delivering, if they were to just say, you know, I don't have the space to, I'm to talk sure about I'm pretty sure I saw now. Dizzy Rascal do that. I'm pretty sure I've seen Dizzy Rascal do that recently. Oh, Piers Morgan asked him about yeah. it, and he was like, what are you asking me about that for? <laughs> yeah, I'm here to talk about my record, fan. <laughs> our next topic, um, as we've sort of alluded to it earlier on, uh, regards um, the government race report which was published um, in a timely fashion in the dead of midnight uh, about about three weeks ago now. Mm. And the report um, centers on the treatment of black people by at uh, the hands of a number of institutions throughout the UK, but outside of your normal sort of um, 
schools, prisons. It's 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 a whole sort of variety of, of black experience, and it basically is is it's quite damning, and it confirms everything as a black person that you experience yourself. You that the society has tried to gaslight you about, and the most hurtful thing is that it's been released to silence. Um, I think if it, there was a news article sort of talking about this by Nadine White uh, titled When Will You Admit Black Lives Don't Matter in which she says you'd be forgiven for thinking the report offers vindication for black people in this country for whom these findings are a long lived reality but even when the systematic inequality we face is etched in black and white we're still being ignored the report is underpinned by a startling statistic over 75% of black people do not believe their human rights are equally protected compared to white people. Yet, there's been no public word from the government about this. Yeah, I, so I, I know this did get your blood boiling last week, Angelo, so I'll just sort of kick it to you to open up uh, just a general response about this, both the article and the report. First of all, um, forever just hold tight, um, Nadine White, because that report came out at 10 to 1 and she had written this through the night and it was uh, out in the morning and it just what I love about Nadine White is she is a great journalist um, and is normally does a good job of being quite neutral but she wasn't able to hide her pain and I'm glad that she wasn't able to and the thing is is however bad you think this report is it is worse um, so uh, it looked to um, uh, health criminal justice immigration and democracy uh i think the thing that is so vindicating and infuriating and saddening and maddening is that as um as nadine white says it is it, it should feel like a complete vindication because you know 85 percent of the respondents black respondents said that they didn't feel that they would be treated the same and then people would, I, I, I can already hear the counter argument from centrist and right leaning Twitter where it's like, well, you know, you've just got a chip and show, not everything is about you. And then you go, okay, when was the last time um, there was a conviction for police brutality in the UK? Don't worry, I'll wait. Okay, exactly. That's when there was. It happened the last time. I just reviewed um, a piece of theatre that was about the killing of Sheikh Bayou, a black man in. Glasgow and so 85% of black people say uh, they don't feel that they'd be treated fairly uh, we have black people dying in custody and the police officers are getting to take early retirement on full pensions without ever kind of even seeing a public inquiry and when the public inquiry is seen uh, nothing happens and I'll just tie in a little bit to small acts and there's that beautiful shot of the uh, of the court and you realise that what this little police officer man is doing in bringing that kind of daily terror to uh, the people in that in that in a mangrove is then visited upon them with the system. What it highlights is that it doesn't matter how many black in a boxes there are, or galdems there are, or slay in your lanes there are, or natives by a carla there are, or why I'm. And no longer talking to white people about race there are or British there are the fact of the matter is is that at a systemic level 
this shit is going to happen and nobody will care. I'm not affiliated with any political party, nor do I wish to be. But I can understand black people, and I'm not saying they're right to think this, but I can understand why black people would go, hold on a second, like, Keir Starmer puts on his armour every single time somebody kind of talks out of any part of their neck when it comes to anti-Semitism. You have this big-ass report, 45-page report, that says all of this stuff about the inequalities that black people face. And you've got the report that looks at how black people in the Labour Party have been racially abused and have been treated shamefully by Labour members. And you're not going to say anything. I can understand why people kind of go, why is there this... Uh, hierarchy of minorities and I'm not saying that that's something that I believe I'm just saying I can understand the mindset because it just seems that there is an ever cascading level of fuckery I'm going to step out there because I want to let you guys get in I'm just going to I just feel my blood I need to calm myself down Dan what you got yeah I mean I'm, I'm glad you took it to that point it's it's when you're talking about sort of Keir Starmer and the the issues Labour have had we're trying to deal with anti-Semitism and I saw, you saw the week after what happened there was the uh, the Labour Party has a systemic problem now with with, with Islam um, you will never see a similar report say the Labour Party is systemically racist They were, they were and I'm not, I'm not sort of trying to Pit these things against each other. I, it's more to sort of more an, an illustration of the fact that the sound of science around this report is that black people in the UK, and it sounds dramatic to say, but we are expendable. Um, and that, unfortunately, is the way the system is set up, and it's it's the way the institutions are set up, so that it's more of an upheaval to create equality and that equality is going to feel like an injustice and that's what you see in other hiring practices that's what you see in sort of wider society now when things and say that again it's such a great thing that you just said about equality feeling like injustice say that again because i want that pinned i want the listeners to hear that shit because that's how i feel yeah i mean this like i say the institutions uh of, of, of state are set up in such a way that unfortunately equality will feel like injustice to 97% of the UK. And unfortunately, our numbers are so small here in comparison to the US where we spoke about in the last, in the last sort of US election recap, we spoke about how black uh, communities were able to mobilize and flip states and have a telling say. We're just too small a number in the UK to, to have that same power. And as a result, we are, we're on our own. We are on our own, and and it's. I think. It's. I say it's a numbers game. We know it's another game from the numbers game from the other side. Statistically, who's more likely to put in prison? Who's more likely to to die during childbirth? Statistically, who's more likely to sort of, to fail at school, to be stopped and searched? The numbers are stacked against us in in so many ways, purely because we don't have enough numbers physically to protect ourselves due to the systems and instruments of state not caring about vast ways of society and i think you've nailed it you've you know they they can commission another report i mean even i think it was today the um the next report about the windrush generation has come out and you know it's been 
found that the Home Office has moved illegally with the, the measures they put in. So it's not even a question of at this point, is it right or wrong? Is it good or bad? Is it is it does it exist? Like it's just so all these questions have been answered. Um we can understand the consequences of these things. Yet nobody is doing anything about it. And I think, you know, it it is it kinda is painful to say that, you know, what you know, what you mentioned, Dan, about being expendable, but how else are we meant to feel? How else are we meant to go? Where are we meant to go? Um it is at times, you know, I think especially with the summer, um, it's exhausting to to have to come back to this point of view to read another article that was put out at a, a, another ridiculous time via another, you know, kind of backhanded channel. Yeah, it's just what do what can we do? Fam, and the thing that annoys me the most is it's we're the people reading the articles. It's we're the people that are reading the reports when we aren't the people that need to be reading that. For me, it's just, I already know this. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir here. You're telling me something that I already know because I've experienced it or my mother's experienced it or somebody else has. But how can we get these into a format where the people that need to listen, the people that need to see it, people that need to feel it? Because they say, if you can't hear, you must feel. And that's the issue. There's not enough people that are feeling it in this country. Just to jump on what you were saying there, Nate, about yet another report, the two things... One, that uh, EHRC report actually criticised the fact that it was yet another report and that so much more progress could be made if instead of commissioning new reports, governments acted on the blood clot reports that they already had out. And then the second thing, you go, OK, well, no, no, the EHRC seems like they're, they kind of got the right idea. But let's go back to the Nadine White article. The report established that our national government-funded equality watchdog, the EHRC, has failed to protect black people. Yet some 24 hours later on Thursday, the very same body welcomed David Goodhart as a new commissioner. He has previously slammed complaints of racism in the UK as statistically naive and supported the hostile environment policies which led to the Windrush scandal. And then a week later we get this thing out about Windrush. Black people in this country are being gaslit. We are being gaslit and people need to understand exactly what that means the guy heading up the ehrc says that claims of racism are statistically naive the day and he is appointed the day after this same body releases a report that goes tell you what wouldn't want to be black in the uk because we racist as shit towards the black and then the new boss that is hired and they announce that goes nah statistically naive so like the thing is when it comes to racism, what's what's the counter-argument? What's the counter-argument to black children are four times more likely to be expelled? What's the counter-argument to black people in the UK are more overrepresented in the prison population than they are in America? What's the counter to the stop and search numbers? What is the counter to the COVID deaths? Tell me what the reasonable debate and argument is to the other side. Because I know that there are people out there that go, these guys just agree all the time. Please, if you can tell me a counter-argument, hit us up on socials. I would love to hear it. Come at me with a with a fair counter. Because at the minute, this shit is... Like, when the government's own report says that we are being gaslit, that feels... And then the same government hires that guy. What, what, what can I tell you? I, the thing is, I'm quite glad in a way that... Well, I'm not glad at all. But I can just see what would have happened... Had it become an issue and had it been blown up, they'd have wheeled out Kemi Badenoch, James <laughs> Cleverly, Kwasi Kwarteng, to come on TV and tell us 
that the respectable the report, blacks. Exactly. That the report isn't really that bad. And it's, yeah, I mean, gaslighting is exactly the word. It's, uh, I'm, quite, I'm, I'm quite exasperated, like, thinking about this. Thinking about a report which confirms the, the way that a lot of people that look like me have been treated. The way that I've been treated in, in many cases, this whole thing's tiring me out. Imagine that. I feel like Skepta. You can't see me, but I've got my fingers in my ears right now. Rah. This is really interesting for me to kind of contemplate with you guys because I'm so used to America obviously being pointed at as like just the most racist ever. But in this situation, it actually seems like the UK is worse off than we are because at least in the States, we have strength in more numbers. And, you know, the the racial oppression is just so obvious. And I, it's something that I hadn't thought about it until you just said, Dan, that in the States, we're able to, to flip shit because so many slaves were brought over to the US that at one point we did actually outnumber white people. Um, so we just have a huge population and we can galvanize masses to affect some sort of change. And here in the UK, I've never really thought about it, but I mean, do... <laughs> Considering the the smaller population of black people in the UK and the fact that you would really need to get quote unquote white allies on board to affect some sort of racial um, equality change in the UK, do you think that white people in the UK are even capable of of doing that of of giving up some of their perceived benefits to to help uh, another group of people that you know, without receiving some sort of direct benefit themselves. Is it possible? But, uh, <laughs> like, this is part of, like, what annoys me, because even there, like, this is not what equality is. Like, we're framing it the wrong way, and it, it's it's been framed in this way so as to discourage others from uh, from asking for it. It's not taking from one person to give to another. It's just re- simply redividing, like, what's already, like, what you know what's already there like no and i i don't think that it is to 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 be like i just want to say it i don't think that that's what it is but the perception like you say is that is that you know playing devil's advocate as a white person oh somehow i will be disadvantaged yeah and and to some to some extent like you do have to fight like white people will have to to fight to expend energy and like yo boohoo like it's it's really not a huge ask for support but it's an inconvenience it's some real 4d chess though for a uh, for a white person to go do you know what if there are less black people going into prison that probably means that white people have to make up the numbers <laughs> it's like or this is this is a radical ass idea i'm just throwing i'm just throwing this shit out there what if we just had less people in prison yeah no mate i don't i don't know though i don't oh, i don't know i don't know that's that's some spicy talk there mate <laughs> Tell you what this reminds me of, when, when Biden in his election campaign was talking down on cops shooting unarmed people and killing them, and he said we need to start teaching cops to shoot unarmed people in the leg. How many bombs that you heart bought, man? This whole thing's mad. Um, can I just say, though, um, I just want to, as the uh, spokesman for all black people, because I feel that's how a lot of people in the UK kind of, here race it's like who's a spokesman well as a self-nominated spokesman for black people i just want to say hold tight all of those that um had a black square we uh really appreciated your sacrifice um 
hold tight all those companies that made like a little bit of money available to have you know a dark in to speak about black history month we appreciate your sacrifice and uh yeah we don't need you to speak about these issues because these aren't the important ones and if you could just let us know when you're going to have another black square in the social media um so that we can you know organize around that I'd, i'd really appreciate it as the spokesman for all black people as another unofficial spokesman, uh, you can hire me, and I am doing IG live series. So, <laughs> we'll just run my email at the end of this pod. He is getting a ring light, so he's official. Small axe, the joy. So, as as many sort of regular fans of the pod will know, the three of the gentlemen that aren't me, all West Indian heritage, and and the lady. And the lady, everyone else except for me. Where are you everyone from, Alex? Except for me. Oh God, everywhere. <laughs> I heard. I heard. I heard well, literally. I, we've got time for it, so if you lot would all like to just shout out where you're from, that'd be good, I think, for the pod. All right, I have heard tell that I'm from Nevis, from uh, Haiti, from Jamaica, <laughs> and there was a new one. I forget. You're a smallie, aren't you? Don't try and say you're <laughs> This is what I hear. I hear different things all the time. Just generally, generally Caribbean, West Indian, and African way back. Nigerian, I think, in Africa. You've done one of those spit DNA tests, isn't it? That's what you've done. <laughs> no, Nigerian. It's, it's the oral. It's just the oral tradition DNA. <laughs> two two percent Egyptian, just like. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bread it's a breadcrumb trail all the way back to the, the Aztecs it really is. Um, actually Mayan is in there Mayan is in there you got some Cherokee in there as well probably all Not Americans too. are Cherokee she's like a Lynx gift set <laughs> fuck off <laughs> man said she's like a Lynx gift set <laughs> that's so out of order <laughs> But it's so accurate. It's a fair. It's a fair comparison. Oh no! <laughs> For our American fans and fans on the continent, that's axe. Axe. Yeah. Yes, it is. I think that's the most genuine, genuine belly laugh I've had on this podcast. <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Angela, where are you from? Oh. Um, uh, three of the grandparents were born in Jamaica. Mum was born in Antigua. So I rep Jamaica and Antigua. And Dom? Three of my grandparents, Black River, St. Elizabeth, Jamaica, just like everybody else seems to be in Huddersfield, um, which made dating as a youth quite interesting having to do that research, that background check beforehand. Um, and then the other one, I think, was Westmoreland, but all Jamaica. So, yeah, I've got that pedigree. All this is super important and super relevant because we're talking about Small Axe. The, I want to say anthology, but it's just a five-film series to be on the safe side, by Steve McQueen, former Turner-winning artist, turned filmmaker, turned small-screen hero in general, cultural legend and what's been crucial as well as the sort of timing of this series is uh, the exposure to what 
previous generations went through as we go through our own sort of awakening to struggles in contemporary UK and the first film of sort of the, of the small acts uh, series of films Mangrove was very sort of it wasn't at all eye-opening but it was like I don't know it was it I felt sort of so so proud in a way so proud so captivated and I I tell you what it's, I'm gonna write about this because I think this and this is important when I was, I don't want to get too deep into it, but when I remember sitting and watching this series and I was like, the guy, the police keep coming in and smashing his place up. And he knew they're going to come in and smash his place up. And Frank Critchler, and he's getting some vex and more and more vex. And every time he's getting so vex and he's fighting back and he's shouting in the face. And I remember I kept thinking, why is he doing this? Like, why is he, like, he knows what they're going to do. Why is he letting himself get into such a rage? Like, he needs to behave in such a way. And then it clicked that, I had internalized um, this feeling that I should be subservient to these figures of authority who were treating me with no respect and treating me as less than a human and were only coming to, to make my life hell and wanted me, if not to not exist, but they wanted me as far away from them as possible. And I've internalized that as a person and I've grown up I've grown up in a way where I'm minimizing myself and my behavior purely as a means to to fit in with with the way they live. But these people had the pride and they had the strength of the character and they had the will to fight for something bigger than them because they knew they were in the right. And that for me was genuinely quite uh a tough thing to go through when I realized, oh my goodness me, like this is, this is, you've grown up in this way that you've become this way. So I've got a, a that's something for me to do is to unlearn that behavior. And I don't know if that's a common viewpoint, but that's just a viewpoint that I felt at the time. But it's great that we've now got this series of stories showing um, different parts of black history uh, that went on in the UK, British history that went on in the UK and that we're all able to watch and share in it in real time. And, you know, we uh, we said earlier, um, you know, we can't expect people to read the reports. But I think one of the, the things that I took away, certainly from the first episode, was I was aware of all these things. I was aware of what had happened through the reading I've done over the last few years. But to your everyday person who maybe doesn't interact with that literature too often, you know, they will see a program like this, hopefully watch something like this. And, you know, the, hopefully the scales will fall from their eyes. But because of the way, you know, the story is told through such human perspectives, like you say, Dan, you know, when uh, it's all kind of heating up and uh, in the restaurant and they're raiding and smashing stuff up, the way it's shown is, you know, the real human consequence of this act. And I think also that the kind of sickness that racism was, right, when I think in one of the scenes, they're like, right, if you lose the game, you're the one who's got to, you know, arrest the first black person you see. It's helping humanise the the fuckery right because like racism is a hard concept for a, a lot of people to grasp but through these stories and through these experiences people feel it and f and can you know begin to imagine what it's like so for me the the, the series is incredible so far don't what are your thoughts tell you what really hit me right i've seen a bag of u.s films around slavery um around the black experience in the u.s 
and I've heard the word nigger used towards black people more times than I can recount. The amount of times that I heard black bastard in Mangrove, that it kind of shook me to my core every single time to the point that it actually became jarring for me, showed that it hit me on a more visceral level than anything else that I've seen before. And obviously the fact that my family are Caribbean and I know of these experiences, both through reading and through listening to experiences that my family have been through as well. So that part wasn't new to me, but there was just something about this and probably in Steve McQueen's storytelling and the way it was shot and how amazing the acting was as well. But that was one of the first that really truly hit me. Um, and, and, and just in me explaining how that black bastard made me feel is probably the best way that I can explain it because it hit me when I'm watching these these films like 12 Years a Slave about the black experience within slavery. That's part of my ancestry as well. But just in this, in that it happened within my my parents' lifetimes, um, and I know that they and my grandparents and my great aunties and uncles will have been through similar when they moved over here. It was beyond poignant to actually sit down and watch it on BBC One, prime time. <laughs> I think it's important to note as well that it is currently being dupped by I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The numbers aren't what they should be, but it's being placed in front of the people that it should be. We need to see more of this on the t- on the TV. We need more of these stories to be told. We need to see more of these actors playing in roles that millions and millions of people are going to see around the UK. Because that's one of the things, taking the story and the content of the films to one side for a second, the quality of the acting. Now, if people can't watch these performances and see that these people should not only be playing roles about oppression and realise just what wonderful, wonderful actors they are as well. That's something that's going to really hurt me, because they're proving this. The scene where Frank Critchlow is in the cell during the case, and obviously he's going through a real episode because of what's happening to him. It's one of the most powerful scenes I've seen in anything. In anything. So this is what I want, not just to take away from the story, and how beautiful, especially with Lover's Rock, I mean, Lover's Rock, just in terms of the way it was shot, I mean, the lighting in that, it was just beautifully done. Dan, do you recall, I think at the start of this year, you and I went to a Steve McQueen exhibition at the Tate. I was I was about to bring this up because, I mean, I've been a fan of Steve McQueen pretty much forever. And I don't know if mm. you're familiar with, like, he did Hunger, Shame as well. And what, and what that exhibition also told us, Dom, is he's so good with, um, he's such a physical artist. And yep. you see it, like... A A M S R like he everything is the attention to detail. He's the one the uh, piece which was just a study of the human eye, and yep. the person just touching the eye. He's like he centers the sort of physical form so so well. And the scene when they're just sitting smoking, they're sitting smoking waiting for the verdict, and like you, you in in mangrove is just like that's probably the best scene in, in the entire program and then there's also the scene in like you say in, in small acts the dancing scene and it's just like it's it's just beautiful it's literally beautiful it's quite exhausting as well because your whole sort of being goes into his films but um yeah it did it did very much channel what you said in in his um in his uh, exhibition it did it did and i think 
I don't know if you recall, I can't remember the name of the um, the artist, but there was one particular installation that we looked at um, and there was a rock artist and he was basically just jamming and it was on loop for hours and hours and it was just the session that he was doing. Um, and you just couldn't take your eyes away from it. There was something about it and that's exactly how I felt with the dance scenes in Lovers Rock. So the way it was lit, the... The sounds when they all go a cappella and they're singing Janet K. Silly Games, it's just the hairs on the back of my neck were on, were on end just because he had something about it was just so captivating. There's a film with Tricky as well, wasn't there? Tricky, it's, that was it. It was Tricky. Well, I think Dom, you've touched on. I think when I was looking into some of the interviews around it, you know, he said it's where he comes from and it's what, you know, he had to revisit that. It just felt like the right thing to do and to expand on these stories. And I think that's why for me certainly when seeing some of this it, it brought back such visceral memories of, of my own experience as well and to see that reflected on BBC One like you say at that time, in that light as well, like you know, you look at the other types of narratives around yep. like black history, it's sometimes very kind of formulaic almost whereas this, this felt very human and very expansive like it wasn't just about the, the issues and the brutality it showed the the wider consequence and the wider effects and yeah, like I say, really just humanised it and, and showed, like you say, that scene in the cell when Darkus and his partner are arguing. You know, you see the effects of what this height, you know, this oppression does to people. So it's just, it's it's incredible. I think as well, you, you kind of touched on it then, Nate. I think a central theme that I saw in both of these two, and I don't know if this is going to go throughout the whole the whole series, is it was, it's kind of like a black, a Caribbean escapism from the lie that was sold to them before they or their parents arrived in the UK. They thought they were coming over to contribute in certain ways and, and to really be serving the mother country in the British Empire and then came over and were made to be less than human, to have no worth, um, stripped of their pride, stripped of their livelihoods that they'd left back in the islands that they left from. And in both of them, in the mangrove in the blues party they found and regained a sense of community where they could for those brief moments that they were in those institutions they were in those parties they were being themselves again and they felt that worth they felt that pride they were connected to something again and that's something that i think we will all experience in our own little ways when we're in certain groups today but given how much more difficult it will have been back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s before we were around, I can't imagine just how important those pillars of the community really, really were for these people. Now, I can, I can get it anecdotally from family members, but I think this is the closest I've actually seen to feeling that through screen. It, I think it's just been remarkably put so far. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that you just said, specifically that idea of how that sense of community was created and how the mangrove was almost bigger than Frank Critchlow's um, plans for it. And when the community are kind of giving him, there's that touching scene where the, the woman gives him the, the box full of money and it's like, you got to keep, you got to keep this open. I was going to use this to go back home. A couple of the things that I really thought about mangrove um was you? I think one of the reasons that they were so determined to fight, and it's something that I, I kind of didn't get until I was speaking to an elder about it, was, and they said, you, what you got to remember is, we were invited over here. 
They invited us over. They needed us. And so we came here as guests. We came here knowing that we were going to do work and that there was this this dream of empire that they wanted us to be full partners in. And then as soon as we got here, there was, you know, racism and all of this stuff, but we never lost that sense of, you know, we were invited here. So when these uprisings happened, the reason that they weren't so easy to crush was because, hold on a second, we was living quite happily somewhere else and you invited us over and we came graciously. And I think you get that sense of just righteousness, especially, I thought, obviously the man dark as hell is just an amazing man. And obviously his last great moment was the... um, uh, the inter- remember the BBC interview um, when the violence at Tottenham happened and they had, they, they had to cut him off and it was like, if you're going to invite Darkus Howe, I'll know who he is. I'm now joined by Darkus Howe, who is a writer and broadcaster, and we can speak to him now, and Marcus Dow is in Croydon. Marcus Dow, are you shocked by what you've seen there last night? No, not at all. I have been living in London for 50 years, there are so many different moods and moments. But what I was certain about, listening to my grandson and my son, is that something very, very serious was going to take place in this country. Our political leaders had no idea. The police had no idea. But if you looked at, at, at young blacks and young whites with a discerning eye, and a careful hearing. They have been telling us, and we would not listen, that what is happening in this country to them is Mr. Howe, if I can just just stop you, Mr. Howe, for a moment. You say you're not shocked. Does this mean that you condone what happened in your community last night? Of course not. What I'm going to condone it for, they, they, they have been stopping and searching young blacks for no reason at all. I have a grandson, he's an angel, and he began to think he was coming at age when the police slapped him up against the wall and searched him, and he thought he had now had a gold star. I asked him the other day, apropos of a sense that something was going seriously wrong in this country. I said, how many times have the police searched you? He said, Papa, I can't count. There's so many times. Mr. Howe, that may That's well have happened, and if you say it did, I, I'm, I am not to gainsay you, but that is, well that, is, that, is no, that is not an excuse to go out rioting and cause the sort of damage that we have been seeing over the last few days. Where were you in 1981 in Brixton? Mr. Howe... I don't call it rioting, I call it an insurrection of the masses of the people. It is happening in Syria, it is happening in uh, Clapham, it's happening in Liverpool, it's happening in Porto Spain, Trinidad, and that is the nature of the historical moment. Mr. Howe, if uh, I there is a, it takes Mr. Howe, if I can I'm just listening. ask you, you are not a stranger to riots yourself, I understand, are you? You have taken part in them yourself. I have never taken part in a single riot. I've been on demonstrations that ended up in a conflict and have some respect for an old West Indian Negro and stop accusing me of being a rioter. Because I, you won't tickle me to get abusive. You just sound idiotic. Have D- some respect. 
Doc as how grandchildren. Thank you very much for joining us from Croydon. Doc as how their writer and broadcaster. Um, mm -hmm. But I also thought, I tell you the other character, because obviously Letitia Wright's got her flowers who played um, Althea, and Sean Parks has got a lot of credit for playing Frank Richley. But I thought um, Rashenda Sandal, who played Barbara, Barbara Beast, who was uh, Darkus's yeah. partner, I just thought that was such an arresting performance because she was, I've been born here, I am mixed race, I have suffered just as much and I suffer doubly I suffer from you guys because you think that I'm not authentic enough to be black and I suffer from the white community because I am somehow an abomination because my parents did something that was so terrible and she kind of carried that anger um, yeah. I was talking to one of my friends that lives in Germany about this and I said I had this thought where I was like I think one of the and it was an immediate reaction that I thought you know the character, the police officer uh, the, the Frank Pulley I was like he was a bit one note. And then I, it was almost as I said it, I was like, but he, he is one note. He is driven by nothing but pure racism. And I think actually one of the best scenes in, in the whole thing was that scene. It was after one of the times where he's just gone in and caused a load of trouble. And he's just walking down the street and he, he, he can barely keep the smile off his face because he knows I can just commit fuckery and nothing's going to happen. He was living his best life. And you realise that what he objects to isn't the restaurant serving food or anything, it's that these people exist. That's And, and, and I thought that, that, that Steve McQueen's always had a very tight camera on in kind of capturing how people feel. He's, he, he, he did it especially well in Widows. I don't know if you've seen that. I'll always write for Widows. But it, just as his pulley was walking down the street, you see that kind of, yeah, I can just cause terror on these people and do nothing but yeah I think all throughout stellar acting all throughout the cast stellar direction and it was it was another great Twitter night um it was an mm -hmm. it was a really really great Twitter night where like people people like I haven't heard Kunamuno and Liad on British TV ever and I just feel a real connection and you know it just that kind of sense of like oh we're here the the black British West Indian community is here and when you get something like this or the ns 10 v 10 when it was vibes versus i think Wizkid, we show up um mm. but yeah it was it was it was it was real nourishing for the soul especially in light of what we've had in 2020 i think my final kind of comments on it as well two things it really did well for me was one show the instrument of the state really well from the street level all the way up to the courtroom um, it showed how literally this was it was an impossible battle um, and then the kind of second thing really is just like you saw so many familiar faces from uh, like it was so good to see Scorcher in there and to you know as someone who's like followed kind of the black British scene to see those actors getting opportunities and playing you know pretty um, similar characters to what you know they do in real life but you know, it's nice to see some of the talent coming through and seeing some of those those faces. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, like, following on from that, I was I took a walk around um, Notting Hill the other day, and it just like just watching that, it just made me wonder what if. And as I'm doing reading around the show, what you realise is that it's, it's key that you you all said there that um, people were brought over, black people were brought over from the Caribbean with this promise of having a share 
of Britain, of re- rebuilding this post-war Britain. It's going to be a brave new tomorrow, and you're Commonwealth partners in this, and you can have your share. And what the show did a, a, a really good job of, of, of uh, portraying was they were not allowed to be that. They were not allowed to be successful. And there's a bit where Pulley says to him, who do you think you are? Opening up a restaurant here. Like, this is what you are. Like, And in reality, there should be a massive black community there. Like, like there's like a, a Hasidic Jewish community in Stamford Hill. And it should, there should be a thriving, they should be homeowners now. They should be on second, third, fourth generations of uh, sort of black families, not second, third and fourth, second and third generations of, of, of black uh, families in that area now, thriving, growing, but it's not because they were driven out by racism and they were driven out by um, it's like the, the state who, who did not want those, those communities that they were brought over to settle there and be happy there. The show showed three raids. When you go back and do your reading, the police raided 12 times in a year. 12 times in a year. And it's entirely malicious, as was shown at the end when the the credits come up and it tells you about, he was taken to court three times and he won every single time and he won the record payout from the police. Um, But yeah, it just, it just, did sort of sadden me to take a walk around Notting Hill the other day, and it's just, just yeah. ugh. I think my biggest takeaway, aside from the beauty of it from uh, Lovers Rock, and this is something that we've all kind of spoken on as well, is the split personalities that you have to develop as a black person in this country. I think when Michael Ward's character, and I can't remember the young woman, um, the, the name of the young woman that he dances with at the blues party, but when they go off to the garage and his gaffer comes in and all of a sudden he's been speaking in Patois all night and all of a sudden he's speaking in this broad Cockney accent, whilst it was a very different situation, all it did to me was make me think of my day-to-day when I'm in an office, when I'm working at your Deloitte's, when I'm working at these places. <laughs> And then I come home and I want to listen to a little bit of Bujo Bantan. And, and that's what they had to go through. And that's what we still have to go through to this day. And that was set in, what, 1981? So some almost 40 years ago. And we've progressed to such a little level that we still feel like we have to do that. We still feel like we have to have one side of our personality that we can show everybody else. Another side of our personality that we can reserve for the people who look like us and it's quite damning but it was it was nice that that was reflected in the in the um film and as well can we just say how fucking beautiful are black people man that's all i kept thinking (laughs) when i was watching when i was watching lovers rock and looking at the colors and looking at the way they'd done themselves up and how all the black men look at the look at how how everybody wanted to fix up where their nice hats and their nice sharp suits and that's a memory that I always get from my, my late granddad. Until the day he died, whenever he went out in public, he was wearing a nice suit mm. and a nice hat and he fixed himself. And this was the pride that black people have. This was the pride that they brought with them from the Caribbean. And that was a pride that they couldn't take away from us. So yes, you might strip me of everything else, but you can't take that pride. And this was just a little bit of that that we saw reflected in those two films um, over the last couple of weekends. I would also like to say shout out to 
all the working black actors who thought once Crime Watch and once the bill were gone, their roles were gone. Small Axe is here. We're going to set you shine for five weeks. You're going to be dominating Hollywood when the film's about next year. So shout out all you guys. <laughs> Can I just say as well, right, before we, before we go on something else on this, as beautiful and as amazing as I found both of them were, there were a couple of criticisms in terms of the historical accuracy, in terms of what these blues dancers looked like. And my mum had a couple of things to say. But one thing I will say is the only part that she thought was really accurate was the behaviour of men in that dance. This was just in Lovers of Rock. She loved, she absolutely loved uh, Mangrove. But if there's one theme that is constant throughout all this shit is that men will be on their shit. So let's just fix up, boys. Agreed. Yeah, I can't can't wait for the next three. It's going to be a drag when it's over. TBH. Thank you. We're going to wrap that up here. It's uh, the first full Black in a Box. And thank you, Nate. Thank you. See you all later. Stay blessed, people. Stay blessed. Alana? (laughs) I can see nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dom? Whosoever diggeth the pit shall bury him. Cheers, guys. And we out. Yeah.